Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hadj Assad, and with me as always is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone, and thank you for trying something new. If this is your first time listening to our podcast, I will reiterate, Ben and I are a pair of automotive journalists, but more importantly, and before all of that, we're really good friends. Right, Ben? I, I concur. I concur as well. In fact, we're such good friends that we take time to, to just bounce our ideas off one another. We, we share the open floor that is this podcast very easily. Nobody cuts each other off, which is something I've noticed in so many other podcasts. Um, and we let the other ones speak when they have something important to say. You're really pumping our, we're really pumping uh, our own Are we time. cutting each other off? Hey, right what's going on? <laughs> Um, in fact, I'm going to ask Ben to tell you, dear listener, where you can find all of his latest work. Go for it, Ben. Sure. You can find my work at uh, Motor Trend, at Car Driver, at Inside Hook, and at Driving Line. But also, this month, I'm running a Kickstarter for my second comic book series called Dead Air, which is about a world where one day out of the year, you can talk to the dead and uh, using this technology called Detalk. But the actual story of the book follows a group of friends who were best buddies in the late 1990s when they were doing college radio together and it's it's uh, a split between that period of their lives and later on in adulthood after a, a tra- traumatic event that they experienced together as a group has kind of sent them on their their separate ways and they they use this detox technology to I guess, examine what had happened to them in the past and discover that what they thought was the truth is actually something very different. Um, The book is available at deadaircomic.com. We're running the Kickstarter until almost the end of June. And I know that uh, a bunch of you out there were supporters of the Code 45 Kickstarter that I ran a couple of years ago when that series was going. And I really appreciate that. So I just wanted to put it out there that I've got another comic book, deadaircomic.com. You can check out all the details on Kickstarter right now. Are we going to put a link to the Kickstarter on our, on our show notes? Yeah, we're going, to, we're going to do that. I'm going to okay, remember great. to do that. <laughs> I will remind you at the end of the podcast. Um, and you can find my work, in case you're wondering, um, at autotrader.ca, driving.ca, Nouveau Magazine, and Automotive News Canada. Automotive News Canada. I need to work on my enunciation today, man. It's pretty good. The bishop had oddly shaped feet. I am a slimy piece of rhubarb. You know, it's odd that like broadcasters have all of these sayings that they've over time co-opted to try and improve their enunciation. I mean, I don't know who came up with it first or who decided that it's like a, what is it, the tip of the tongue? The, the, the teeth, teeth and the lips. Yeah. The teeth and the, lip, and the lips. Yeah. Like, it's like, you know, I don't know. It feels very theatrical to me. Like this is something you We don't you, you do any exercises before we start recording. Maybe we should. Have I do a lot of stretching. It? I do a lot of stretching. You know, like. I apply so much deodorant. I, I run cannot. Some, <laughs> <laughs> I apply so I run some Shakespearean lines with the wall in my, uh, in my office. Yeah, we really get prepared for these podcasts, except for me, whenever I'm about to start talking about a car, I close all of my tabs with all of my information. All the stats and pricing information (laughs) just like vanish from the world. Every time. Okay, well, I'm going to start us off this week with something that is a little familiar, so you might have some of these tabs and your brain still open. It's the 2023 Toyota Supra, and I know we've talked Supra in the past. Both of us have driven it a few times. Um, Mm -hmm. I know Sammy drove it, what, five times before it was even released? Wasn't that the (laughs) – you kept driving like the prototype? Yes, (laughs) I drove the prototypes back in the day, which were cool. It was very exciting. I remember being very excited by the prospect of driving a new Supra. 
Um, and not putting so much thought into its um, connection with BMW, which I think more people have been uh, kind of critical about. And I think, Ben, you've been kind of critical about um, Toyota's plan to, what did you say, farm out their Halo vehicle to a completely other automaker. Yeah, so I'm going to be a little less critical of that relationship today because what I'm discussing is tied directly to it. The version of the Super I Drove Sammy is the new six-speed model, which uh, has a clutch pedal which is a first, um, I believe this the Super came out in 2020. And since that time, it's received a power bump from the for the six-cylinder car. It's been given a four-cylinder model, and now it has a six-speed. So Toyota is really <laughs> keeping things moving. And by Toyota, I mean BMW, because this ah. is still the, um, the B58 inline six-cylinder engine that BMW puts in a lot of its vehicles. It is one of my favorite BMW motors. It is... Truly excellent. The turbocharged motor in this car, I believe, puts out something like, if you were to read the spec sheet and really buy into the spec sheet, 382 horsepower and 368 pound-feet of torque. In the real world, it's probably closer to like 420 or 430. It It just feels way more powerful. And the numbers kind of back up the fact that BMW has been underrating this motor. If you are BMW, there's a lot of reasons to underrate it because you have to protect the M3 and the M4, which use the S58, which is a a more finely tuned version of the same engine, but you don't want to show how close those motors really are together in terms of output. Um, But Sammy, the reason I'm not so harsh on Toyota for the BMW connection today is because the Supra is the only way you can buy a manual vehicle that has the B58 under the hood. Yeah, I think that's pretty exciting. I think that's a, a totally new aspect of the of the car right now. Um, like you used to be able to get a two series with the B fifty eight and a manual, and I believe a while ago the three series, uh, but not anymore. Like the two series is automatic only at this point. And mm-hmm. on the super side, if you want a manual, you have to get the B fifty eight because the four cylinder engine is still automatic only, which is kind of unusual, I guess. Um, yeah, usually it's the more the more basic or cheaper a car is, the more likely it'll have an automatic, right? Yeah, and and to Toyota's credit, they have in terms of pricing to get the six speed, it's a no cost option, so um, you're not going to have to pay more. It's funny because the ZF, I, I think it's a ZF eight speed automatic that's in the car, a very good transmission. Wait, Pro- it is a no cost. I'm looking at a, di- a price difference here. I I'm pretty sure it's a no cost option. My understanding is that the manual is on a specific limited edition version of the car. No, oh, no, no. Maybe not. No, That's so amazing. Okay. They, there is... They have a weird trim level called A91-MT, yeah, which is five, not a very attractive name for anything ever. Right? There are 500 of those cars that are being built. And I think that's the most expensive Supra. It's like just under 60 grand. So mm-hmm. the, the, the base Supra with the manual transmission or the automatic is, I think, 53.5 or something like that. 53.6, yeah. Yeah, so it's... It, um, I'm I, sorry. I really <laughs> apologize for derailing your, your conversation there because I was looking at this trim level and I thought, you know, if it has the Dash MT, it must be the only one that has the manual transmission. But that isn't the case. No, it's mostly paint and uh, trim. Like I think it's and it's limited like, production, yeah, yeah, and you get I think it's a full load of options. I'm not sure about that, but it gets like unique colors inside and out and and that kind of thing. <clears throat> but uh, it's cool that they're they're not charging you more for it. Yeah, um, great. Whether the, the 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 other interesting thing that the Supra manual brings to the table is that now you have a direct competitor in a sense to the Nissan Z, 
which came out mm. last year and mm-hmm. brought a 400 horsepower twin turbo V6 instead of an I6 yeah. with just a little bit more power on paper, 400 horses, similar torque, 350 pound feet. And it had a six speed from the start. And I think that a lot of people took a look at the market and they were like, okay, so Toyota has this automatic only Supra. For me, that really kind of put it in a grand touring side of things. And the driving experience of the Supra was similar to a grand touring experience. The Z, on the other hand, it wasn't quite as well put together inside. Like the cabin doesn't feel like a BMW luxury cabin like the Super does. The ride quality is a little rougher. The tail end likes to step out a little more easily. It kind of felt more like a sports car. So still Grand Touring, but with a sports car edge. And that had a manual transmission right from the start, which I think kind of put it in in the sports car conversation too. Okay. I was, I was, I'm just gonna say there's a difference in our in our view of this. I felt that the Supra did feel a little bit um, sharper overall. I wouldn't call it a Grand Tour because I don't think it's very comfortable, especially space space wise or pr- practical wise. Um, and I really enjoyed driving it, even in the automatic form. Um, and I we, we put it, I put it on the track and, and enjoyed it there too. But I can totally understand where you're coming from. Um, by suggesting that it's a Grand Tour because, you know, some sports cars, and I think we'll talk about this later in the podcast, some sports cars have a, a really sharp edge that's made to make that's made for them to appeal to those who enjoy motorsports or feel want to feel like they're in a, their own kind of uh, track day every time they hit the road. And, you know, I think realistically, um, those are those have a different element altogether all when, when you make a production car like that. I feel like part of what was keeping me from considering the Supra a true sports car was it felt a little insulated from the road in the the way that the Z Z didn't. And I hear what you're saying in terms of like interior room and like, you know, is this really the ideal car to go on a a, a weekend adventure in? I would say no. Um, But, uh, but okay. But this, this manual transmission changes things. I mean, I think it changes a bunch of things about the car. It it is very unique because it has a manual transmission where you can't, you can't match this, 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 transmission this motor together in any other product no no on the on the marketplace which is which is unique um and i think one it has two less gears am i wrong yeah it's so six speed versus eight speed there's a bunch of other changes too the the rear gear is shorter it's it's a 346 versus a 315 which is what's in the eight speed auto okay Um, yeah i think that's partly because part of what i've read fuel efficiency fuel efficiency no it's not no well no because the the shorter gear ratio will give will actually give you more aggressive acceleration no i mean on the other end i I was thinking that that's what makes the eight speed a little bit more fuel efficient yeah that and the fact that it has a different (laughs) yeah it has two extra gears at the top right Mm -hmm. so what toyota slash bmw is looking at with this transmission is um the gear ratios are taller inside the manual versus the automatic so they kind of had to balance that out with a more aggressive rear end um the they also had to reprogram so there's a couple of other updates that come there it's like a stealth generational update for this car they changed some things about how the shocks are tuned they've Mm -hmm. uh changed the stability control program on the car because um, they wanted to be able to come out hard from a, like a very tight corner. Whereas previously, I think in hairpin corners, the stability control on the Supra would get in the way if you accelerated very hard after okay. coming out of a slow, hard corner. They've changed that. Um, they obviously had to add a clutch, but to make the transmission fit inside the Supra, they had to take a bunch of sound editing elements off of it. <laughs> oh. Just kind of interesting. Uh, and it has a larger clutch assembly than it did in other models. It's a ZF six speed as well. 
So again, they're not straying too far from the playbook. Uh, the, the final change they made to the stability control is every single car, whether it's automatic or manual, they were, there was like some liftoff oversteer that was occurring with the car. I didn't really notice it that much when I drove it. You notice it more in the Z. Okay. But uh, on, Toyota has kind of changed the stability control to try to deal with that. The thing that I noticed the most about the Z when you're driving it, sorry, the, the Supra when you're driving it quickly is it's, it's a bouncy car. With the, yeah, with it's the twitchy. Sh- yeah, it, twitchy is a good word for it, especially with when you're in sport mode and the shocks are at whatever they're. they're it feels most. like I'm not entirely sure if the tires are, are like the tire contact patch is, is fully connected to the road at times. And like, that I is, it, feel like I'm. Oh, <laughs> no, for sure, and especially if you're on like broken pavement. And I know yeah. that's a cliche to say, but I took the Supra on some roads, some very fun twisty roads that have some pretty rough areas, and mm-hmm. like we're talking, it'll move you around in the lane. When you're when you're going through a corner at a at a high rate of speed and you hit a bump at the you know whatever angle it is that moves the damper in such a way to kind of shift the tra- the, the chassis of the car, um, okay. it's not like it's out of control, but it's not the smoothest drive. And it means you're kind of like always wrestling the steering, right? Yeah, you have to stay on top of the car at all times. Mm-hmm. Uh, this so in terms of smoothness, kind of doing a segue here, the manual transmission gets better the quicker you drive it. At, when you're driving around town, I mean, obviously compared hey, what? to... Okay. What's that? That's a, it's, that's a surprise to me, I think. Well, I think that whenever you're comparing a car that you've only ever sampled as an automatic, the manual yeah. is obviously going to feel less smooth around town because you're going to be on the clutch, you're going to be getting used to the clutch, and you're going to be in first and second gear quite a bit. Well, clutch um, dumps, and that's all, for, that's all kinds of fun. <laughs> yeah, there's, I don't think there's a clutch dump feature on the stability control of the Supra. You know what's funny, though, because we talk about how frustrating it is when we get into a sports car and we have to go through all sorts of drive modes to get to the fun part. Yeah. I feel like the Supra does a very good job where it just has, like, one button on the console, and you push it, and it goes into individual mode, and you can set up individual however you want. Uh, mine had it set up to be like full sport with the sport exhaust and stuff, but I yeah. liked being able to just push that and have it happen. And you know me, I hate drive modes. I'm like the least excited about drive modes. I think sports cars should always be in sport yeah, mode. I agree. You should, it um, should be like, it should be like, it should be the other way around. I should have a comfort mode. Yes. For, if, that should, the car should start in sport mode. I should put it in comfort mode whenever I'm not doing everything. But I, but I guess more people are, are drive are daily driving a car then. And and also, I think that like EPA regulations, the way they test these cars, <laughs> it really plays a role where if you have an automatic transmission and you start it in sport mode, the EPA is going to test it in sport mode and it's never going to shift out of sixth gear <laughs> on the yeah. highway and it's going to be at like 3,500 RPM or whatever it is and it's going to, you know, 20 miles per gallon. So I think that, you know, regulatory plays a role there. Although there are numerous enterprising aftermarket tuners who can help you with whatever your default starting mode is. <laughs> um, so I found the transmission around town to be a little clunky, not a lot. Uh, the throws are fine. The there's no real rubberiness in the transmission. I know sometimes BMW manual transmissions aren't known for being super precise. I, okay. I didn't really have any complaints about that with this shifter. But again, like if I was to compare the shifter in the Supra to something like from the Miata, for example, you're not going to get that kind of feel. Like, yeah, the, the Miata has this like bolt action feel to it, right? Like exactly, it really just it's mechanical. Feels- it's super mechanical. It's really direct feeling. Um, that is a perfect manual, I think, um, for most enthusiasts on the market. Yeah, and the throws in the Z are a little bit shorter, but I wouldn't say it's a deal breaker. Like, if you were comparing either of these cars together in manual form, you wouldn't drive the Supra and be like, I like this a lot less, 
You know, hmm. it's 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 perfectly acceptable for what it is. And it's exciting to have a manual sports car. I mean, like yeah. how many there are out there right now? Like you can still get a manual uh, Cayman, right? Yeah, for yeah. sure. So I would say that the, the, you have the Z, you have the Cayman, and then you have the muscle cars. And and yeah. the, and that's pretty much it. Like what else? And then Miatas, and that's it. Unfortunately. Yeah, I right? mean, like, if you go down like a power class, for sure, you have the yeah. Miata and you have the BRZ. But I'm just saying, like, if you're talking about like 400 horsepower and up, you're you're in a very very limited zone. I mean, all of the M cars, the the capital letter M cars, M2, M3, M4, still have manuals. But um, you're starting to get into the position where if you're shopping from BMW and you want a manual in an M car, you're getting a base model. Like you yeah. don't get some of the features that the other I don't cars... think you get all-wheel drive either. No, you can't get all-wheel drive and you can't get the competition models. So if any of that matters to you, you know, this is kind of the the narrow hallway that you're stuck in. So like it's nice that this car exists. And as I said, once you're driving, once you're on the move, I found the shifter to be quite good. The action was 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 fine. As I mentioned before, I keep using that word. Um, mm. But I, I never found myself missing gears. I never found it difficult to find the right gear. Uh, it has automatic rev matching, which you can thankfully turn off. I mean, it works fine, but it's less engaging to drive like that. I just I just like blipping the throttle around town at like low okay. speeds. It's it's just fun and it's a good. I practice. like the I like the the rev match most more more often than not, especially with. Uh, with higher horsepower, it cars, feels so. showy though if it's doing it on every yeah, shift. Yeah, that's true. When you're <laughs> yes, when you're leaving an on ramp or, or you're, time, in a I mean, you're on an off ramp and you're like, what is happening right now? <laughs> or you're just sitting at the light and you're shifting into first over and over again to like blip the <laughs> throttle and, and be that guy. Yeah. Uh, so I think overall, I don't have a ton to say about this car. Um, no, I hold on. I need to know whether or not this is the if if the manual has redeemed the Supra in your mind, ah. in your in your in your in your hands. I don't know if I would consider it redemption because I, I didn't I don't dislike the Supra. It just doesn't do a lot for me. I don't think the manual transforms it to the degree where I'm suddenly like a Supra evangelist. Okay. I really like that that eight speed automatic. It's a great transmission. Yeah, we've always liked the eight speeds in the in BMWs. Yeah, cars. I, I just don't you know it, it's it's hard to say because I'm not the kind of person who would get into a Supra and say I need to put this on a racetrack. I think I would really enjoy it. I'm not. I, I think it would be very competent. I don't have any problem with that use case for the Supra, but it's not a car. But when I get in, it says, "Okay, time to drive me." You know, like okay. It, there's weird parts about this car where it, it it doesn't feel luxurious. It doesn't necessarily feel like it's worth its pricing. Like we, what do we say? It's fifty five thousand or fifty thousand. Yeah. Fifty three, fifty three six is starting price. Yeah. yeah so that's ten thousand dollars more than a Z. That's a lot of money. That's I think the Z's biggest asset is its price. It's is its price and the availability of a single twin turbo drivetrain at that price. You don't have to pay for the even the four cylinder Supra is more expensive than the base V6 twin turbo Z. But all of these prices make you say, well, I can get a V8 muscle car and really enjoy straight lines. I don't think it's I don't think it's that because I do like this drivetrain. This is as I said one of my favorite BMW motors of okay. all time. But I, I get in the car and I look at the price tag. I look at the environment that I'm in in the Toyota. And I'm like, this doesn't really feel like a $54,000 car. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it It's missing features that I would want to have. Like the infotainment feels kind of basic. Okay. Uh, the gauge cluster feels kind of basic. The, the, the trim is just okay. And there's not a ton of space in the back. If like we were talking about, you know, grand touring, mm-hmm. grand touring wise, it's not a great car for a weekend getaway. So 
I'm not saying it's a compromised car, but I'm saying I don't necessarily understand where the Supra fits in. Um, I don't know. It's like okay. if it was $40,000, like the Z, I think I could forgive a lot more of that. There's uh, a lot of discussion about how Toyota has kind of changed um, its perception a little bit. And I think there's something that needs to be said about this manual Supra. I don't know if we talked about this, but I think Toyota might have the most manual transmissions on the market. Well, I mean, BMW has three. Toyota okay, has but Toyota has three. 80, 86 Corolla Supra. Yeah. You can get a manual version of the Taco. You can get yeah. a manual version of the um, regular Corolla and the hatch, I believe. Can you? Yeah. Are you sure about that? I'm almost 100% sure. Okay. Yes. Okay. So that's five. Um, I think that's kind of cool, man. Like, I think you're you're getting somewhere with that. Yeah, I can. I, I agree. I do think it's cool. I'm going to double uh, check now that you've questioned. This I think it's yet. no. I think you're right. I think it's deck chairs on the Titanic. Uh, I still I, think that's neat. I mean, why not? Oh, well, maybe I, I was completely making it up. You can't get it with the with the hatchback. Okay, I screwed they, that that's up. That's weird because they used to have like a high performance version of the hatchback that like wasn't really high performance. But <laughs> yeah, like wink, wink. Like it was fun to drive, and I liked it. Uh, but I, and I remember that being. I went to the launch program for that. Maybe. I have completely made up all of this. They don't have manual Corolla, regular Corollas anymore. Maybe really? that's a 2022 thing only. It's I possible. thought they used to have an Apex edition that was like manual only. Yeah, that's that's the one I was talking about. Um, <laughs> but it, it, things can change really quickly. Like I mentioned, BMW doesn't have manuals outside of M anymore, right? But last year they did. Remember when Mini had manuals and then they said, oh, the chip shortage said we can't make it. We can't have manuals yeah, anymore. Yeah, that was and weird. But they have them again, right? Like, do they really? Are they back. Truly, are they truly out there? I think they're back. That's exciting. Mini might have more manuals than Toyota. <laughs> yeah, I think they might be right. the only company that could like make that happen. So, <laughs> yeah. so there's four at Toyota, definitely. Okay, fine. Maybe I jumped the gun, which is still pretty good. And I would say there are probably four manual minis. Sure. And it, and there's like what Honda has one. Can you get a manual yeah, Civic? Two, maybe. I think you can get, if you want to consider the Type R different than the than the SI regular the SI. Okay. And, the and then Mazda Mazda has two. Um, Mazda 3 and the, the MX-5. Okay. So that's two. And then Ford has zero. <laughs> Mustangs. Ford, Ford has 23 different Mustangs. And of those Mustangs, <laughs> I don't know how many of them have manuals. Okay. Porsche has, I think you can get a 911 with a manual and I think you can get a, a, a 718 and a, what's the other one called? Came, no, both, both 718s. Yeah. Yeah. So you can get those. Um, mm-hmm. And then, uh, I mean, Chevrolet has Camaro and I think that's it. Now that, Do you uh, think there isn't a manual Colorado. No, there's not a manual Colorado. And the Spark is gone now. Um, so, yeah. And Chrysler has the Challenger. Challenger. And, and that's, that's it. That's it. So they have, again, 19 different trims of the Challenger. 19, yeah. But but of those trims, very few of them are, are have manual availability. Really? Yeah. It's it's starting to get – it's starting to really narrow. Um, okay. And and anyway, so that's, that's pretty much all the – What about ma- Jeep? Jeep's got one or two. <sighs> Do they have is two? The gla- is the Gladiator manual? Oh, that's a good question. I don't – think so i don't think so either it should be <laughs> i don't think so the wrangler definitely is and that's probably it unless okay. there's like unless can you still buy a renegade with a manual a renegade really could there you ever buy a renegade? Re- could you ever buy a renegade with a manual that would be deep. i have not I driven one renegade is still on sale i know but that platform that fiat platform has like evolved and i feel like there's a new one that's going to be arriving soon okay uh i don't I'm know excited. when yeah. You've got me excited about it. You know, the Renegade is like a vehicle, uh, off topic, is a vehicle I really wanted to like. And like, I don't dislike it, but I couldn't recommend somebody buy it, I guess, because it's it's kind of old at this point. 
Um, but it, uh, it still looks pretty cool in with the right paint and the right wheels. Okay. Um, that platform, though, like I've driven the Fiat version of that platform, and it's so disappointing. You definitely can't get a manual anymore. Okay. Like the Fiat version is so disappointing, and I feel like yeah. it's it's like the Jeep's whimsical packaging that makes it okay. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. I agree. I I think that the Fiat is so awful that the Jeep is like it's a miraculous. It's miraculous that they're like the related in some way. Yeah, and you had all that cool stuff like the removable roof panels. Yeah, and, you know, and all the little and the Easter design eggs. was fun and quirky. Yeah, yeah, and but it's just like you know it's been around so long at this point. <laughs> anyway, um, okay, so you know. You've made your. You've said your piece about the Supra. Yes. I'm going to say something. Um, I'm going to talk about a car that's going away, and um, I'm. I think we're going to miss it when it's gone. I think we we miss a lot of cars when they're gone, more so than we think we do. So I drove the 2024 Jaguar F-Type 75 and R75. Now wait, wait, 2024, two- <laughs> Sebby, did you get in a time machine to do this? Actually, I drove it like a month ago, and I wasn't allowed to talk about it till now. But here we are. Because um, my this, calendar says twenty twenty three. This is a this is essentially the last year of um, Jaguar's um, con- uh, sports car, and it's a it's a th- the seventy five um, alludes to the brand's very first sports car, which is the nineteen forty eight um, XK one twenty, which was a record. Holding car at the time of its release, it was a a vehicle with the highest top speed. I think it it was designed to go 120. It did a little bit more than that on several runs. Did they ever consider renaming it like the XK? The 130, XK the 133, 127, or 132? Yeah, um, no, they didn't. Obviously not. It's also won a ton of um, of races. I think you know, it, and I think that. We're going to talk a little bit about heritage. I think heritage is this bizarre thing that we talk about in the automotive industry that sometimes means nothing at all. Um, And we have a lot of automakers that want to throw their heritage in the bin for um, naming reasons or nostalgia reasons. Uh, We've talked about, you know, Mustang Mach-E or bringing back a Blazer name for cars that really seem unrelated to to the heritage that originally was associated with those names, right? Yes. And so this Jaguar... F-Type 75, it's a tough, it's a tough bet for me to, to, to talk about because I actually really think the Jaguar F-Type is a, is a very unique product that fits in a white space that people didn't expect it to. It's not sports car sharp like um, we were talking about before. I think price-wise it can, it can rub up against the 718 models and a Porsche 911. So it fits this kind of area where it's either a Grand Tour or a sports car, and it never successfully achieves that feeling. But it's its own thing altogether. Now, did you drive cabriolets or coupes? I drove both. So I drove the standard 75 as a cabriolet, and I drove the R75 as a coupe. And there's a slight power difference between the two, and uh, the models I had had a difference in terms of powertrain. Um, the the standard model was rear-wheel drive, and it made about 450 horsepower, while the R Coupe was all-wheel drive and had uh, 560 horsepower or something like that. These are just – these are incredibly fast vehicles. Um, they both do – I mean, the R does 0 to 60 in 3.5 seconds, and the non-R does it in 4.4. Those are very – those are very small numbers. It's very unbelievable how quick these cars feel. Um, and they sound great. I mean, if there's ever, um, the thing I'm going to miss the most about the Jaguar F-Type is the sound. Easily one of the best sounding vehicles 
um, consistently through its generation. I think it's a better sounding product than any of its competition, maybe except for, uh, I don't know if a Mercedes AMG can be can be counted as a rival, which, which AMG might be counted as a rival. You mean like the here? AMG GT? Yeah, I think an AMG GT might be too expensive. Uh, if it's possible. But I don't that, know. That it's is a, certainly an excellent sounding car, though. And I think the F-Type is, still is among most the best sounding vehicles. And um, all through a, 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 a supercharged V8, 5 liter V8. And we're going to talk about this V8 in a moment. But um, I don't know. I had so much fun with this car. And I have no clue why. Do you know what I mean? Is there no clue cool why? <laughs> I have it feels no like, idea why. It feels like you just gave me like six good reasons as to it why this fast. would be exciting. It is loud. It is. It 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 just it turns heads. It's beautiful, but like handling wise, it's not super sharp. You really do need to rely on good rubber and good brakes to have any any kind of fun in this vehicle. Um, the the all wheel drive model has you know a little bit extra heft in the front, which can can cause some panic at times it isn't that jittery feeling that we were talking about with the supra so there's like a bit of sway in the in the responsiveness so there's all these elements that make it seem like it doesn't stand up against rivals but if you talk about just the experience on its own i think people will really um, like what the F-Type is and what the F-Type was. And, and so speaking, it's always been like this, right? Speaking of rivals, I just checked the Mercedes-Benz site and the AMG GT is no longer on sale. It's gone. Yeah. I think that's because they want to make the SL the new AMG GT. Ah, oh, but those cars are so far apart personality-wise. But I think that the, from what I understand, they built the chassis of the SL with AMG. Uh, it kind of feels like... Oh, that sounds like marketing, right? Yeah, yeah, it sounds like marketing. It sounds like, you know, like, well, we wanted the new M-Class to really be the new G-Class. G and we're like, <laughs> <laughs> Um So we're talking about heritage. And one of my biggest concerns, I think, when I'm talking about the F-Type is when we think about the Jaguar brand, and if we're talking about that XK120, which I even got to take a spin in, and it was a really brilliant sounding car, and it got a lot of thumbs up and attention... Um, I don't know where that connection is. The XK120 came at a time when Jaguar wanted to be the best in the world at something. And the F-Type is not the same brand. I don't think it is the same product. I don't think it's the same automaker behind the F-Type. Obviously not. 75 years apart. But what and like several Jaguar... bankruptcies and corporate parents yeah. later. You know, like... What does Jaguar do now that is anywhere near the top of the world in what it does? I, You know... So much of that attention has shifted to Range Rover, right? Where like even Range Rover never feels like the best in the world. But the Range Rover itself, the top tier Range Rover, I think is in the discussion for you know a top SUV, top luxury it, SUV. The I mean I I appreciate the Range Rover because I think it spurred the ultra high luxury brands to make SUVs. I think that was a product that they saw they saw their clients buying. I think Bentley and Rolls-Royce saw their clients had all these Rolls, these Range Rovers everywhere. And they're like, hey, we can make something like that. And they yeah, did. But, but when you get into a Kalinin or Kalinin or however you say that. <laughs> what like, about the Bentiega? Does it really feel like a, a better Range Rover or does it just feel like it it's fancier and more opulent? And like, yeah, it's I guess that's overdone. It's like over the top. So that's that's my question, though. It's like when we talk about, oh, 
the best at the top tier in the world. You know, mm-hmm. you can have like a hat on a hat on a hat, right? And it's kind of like you're really over. You know it. that I am often wearing a hat on a hat on a hat. Yeah. So there's that side of the luxury equation, and there's no end to what you can do there. But then there's also the idea that you can reach a certain level. And you can go beyond it if you want, but you're not. There's no. There's no real return on doing that. And I think maybe yeah. the Range Rover is that level. Yeah. Okay. I, but, I hear you but on that. But to, to to be fair to your point, Range Rover is not Jaguar, right? Like c- corporately, no. they are, and it's the same. It's the same. Everything else behind the scenes. But if we're talking about like a Jaguar as being the the top of the world, no, I don't think it's. I think that the F Type, as he pointed out is a car that just has way more personality than many of its competitors. Now that the AMG GT is off the table, I mean, the the 911, it, it's it's an extremely competitive car and has like 300 versions and yeah. um, it, you, it can do everything you want it to do. But I, I don't know if it's as universal in terms of personality appeal as something like the F-Type, which is a simpler concept. I think you're right. And I mean, and 911s and 718s have their sound, have their appeal, their emotional appeal. They have these limits that are super high, and I don't think you get the thrill until you reach those limits. And I think a Jaguar, the F-Type is, like, thrilling from the very beginning just due to how loud and obnoxious it, it sounds and, like, just brutal sometimes that it can feel. And I think that's a that's cool in its own way. I need to say this, though, but this is the end of the of the F-Type. There is not going to be another F-Type after this 2024 model year version. As, at least that's what I'm told. And this might be the end of, like, Jaguar in one way or another. They're, they're going through some sort of restructuring. They've changed their name of Jaguar Land Rover to JLR altogether, which I thought that's what they were called anyways. Um, and they're going to make four different brands. They're going to have Jaguar for Sport quote-unquote, Range Rover for luxury, Discovery is a whole brand on its own for family, and Defender will be its own brand for adventure. Yeah. Um, And then, as far as I can tell, the very first um, Jaguar product, the the very next Jaguar product that we will see will be an all-electric product that will come out in 2025, um, and will be a four-door with a price point of about, uh, well, over $100,000. Which wow. is a different class. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's a bit of a reach, I think. It's a completely different class now. So they're, they're just doing, they're changing now. Um, I don't know how this, I don't know how I feel about all this. Because maybe this restructuring will help them attempt to get back to the, the world-beating or class-leading products that they can do. And I also want to add that when it comes to electrification, Jaguar does have, as, as much of a, as a, I think, um, punchline of British cars and electrical issues are Jaguar has a history with the I-Pace. They did it fairly early on in the industry in terms of an all-electric, long-range, big-batteried luxury car. And they also compete in um, Formula, Formula E. e. Yeah. And they, they've been steadily progressing. I think they're in third or second now in the in the league. Um, and are, you know, they're they're clearly invested and involved in this area. So I think they're, they're they're putting the pieces together that can lead them back to the path of of being a world beater again. But I don't know if I'm the only one who's seeing these these notes, these kind of pieces come together. I mean, it really depends. Maybe I'm just being optimistic. It really depends on, you know, how much carryover there is from the Formula E world, how much the general public pays attention to electrified performance, um, whether their car that comes out at 100 grand is going to be something like a Lucid, which is 
clearly ahead of the pack in a lot of ways, or whether it's going to be something like a Mercedes EQS, which is on paper quite competitive, but in the real world, not that impressive in terms of making a statement. So it has to be at that lucid level to be to be different, right? Because we have so many options now in the luxury electrification space. And what will make Jaguar want to be the better product other than design? I think design is maybe the most consistent thing they've gotten right over decades. Yeah, for sure. And uh, but the question is, like, is design enough to do it in in a world where so much of the driving experience of electric cars is becoming more homogenous? And Mm -hmm. I I honestly don't know. It's very hard to speculate about what this car will be like, because if there's an unpredictable car company, it's Jaguar. (laughs) Like, (laughs) there's a company that, like, often goes against the grain of what the rest of the industry is doing. I think there are so many moments when I think about the resale value of a Jaguar F-Type and whether or not it's going to get down to the point of where we can like just snag one on Auto Trader. Well, here's a question. Please. Here's a question I yeah. have for you. If you had, if you were shopping depreciated um, luxury coupes, and you had the choice between an F-Type and an L- Lexus LC500, what would you Ooh. do? Ooh, that's so difficult. Yeah. I would think I would be. I would have to be sensible and get an LC because of the the what's the word i'm looking for the expected reliability uh of a of a lexus product versus versus a jaguar long term and and you know design though is an interesting question because they're both very good looking cars i feel that the f-type design has been on the market so much longer that it's somewhat lost its uh its shock and awe i guess whereas the lc Mm. is a less common car to see to begin with um and it's only been out a short time in comparison okay I, i I really like the F-Type. I'm the kind of person who has been shopping depreciated F-Types uh, every once in a while. I often look at the, the V6 versions because I think that's a very good drivetrain and they're a lot cheaper on the used market. And you can um, get one with a manual, I think. Yeah, but I'm not a huge fan. I mean, we just had the whole super discussion, but I'm not a huge fan of that transmission in that platform. I think okay. the 8-speed is a lot better choice for the F-Type um, because I would not be taking mine on a track. It, yeah. it's, it's fun to drive on a track, but it's not the kind of car I think that is serious about turning in hot laps. It's it's more of an attitude car and more of a GT car, in, in my opinion. There are so many of these on the used car market. It's so funny. Um, the other thing is, did you hear that they fixed the one major issue we had with the with the Lexus LC? They gave it a new infotainment system? Yeah, yeah we, I think we talked about it on, on a previous I'm episode. so amazed. I cannot wait to drive this thing, this is going to be the game changer. This could be a game changer. Like, it really could. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely a game changer. Although, I I would suck it up and buy one with the crappy um, mouse, mouse <laughs> Do you think thing. the market will be flooded with all of these uh, bad infotainment? Oh, I certainly models? hope so. I yeah, certainly hope so. Like, people just lose their minds and they're like, okay, I need a... I, I need my infotainment fix. I can't, I can't do the finger thing anymore. The finger thing. Okay. Speaking of um, losing their minds, Ben, you recently had an experience with uh, while towing that uh, made me think you might have lost your mind a little bit. <laughs> well, so as longtime listeners of the show might know, um, I've been over the last, I guess since the pandemic started, actually, been building a an LS swapped Jeep Grand Wagoneer from the 80s, 1987. And the one of the goals, so <laughs> it's hard to talk about goals when you get into a project this big because mission creep is like a real thing. And you can start adding things to a platform that you never really thought you were going to. But there were two things I wanted to do with this Jeep when I first started building it. And that was 
have a modern engine that would start every time I turned it, turned the key and that would get give me great power and decent fuel mileage, which is like the exact opposite of the stock Grand Wagoneer, which had like 150 horsepower and like six miles per gallon from a giant V8. So I love how I love how you're like, I feel like you have trauma when you were like, all I want out of a car is that it turns on and it, and it no. doesn't it doesn't consume like a. A mile a gallon. No, like, but the thing is, it does sound a bit traumatic, but I, as someone who likes driving older cars and has a couple of cars that are, you know, more than 40 years old or approaching 40 years old, in order to be able to enjoy a car, you have to be able to drive it. Yeah. And a car that, that is difficult to drive, that, that that has a cranky ignition system or bad fuel system or whatever it is, like – you're not going to like that car. You're going to develop an antagonistic relationship with it. So my Datsun, which is my track car, has a factory fuel-injected engine from the 70s. And there are so many people in the Datsun community who say you should get rid of that. You should go to carburetors. You can get more power right out of the box. Honestly, I like being on the track on pit road and being able to turn on a heat-soaked engine and have it start and drive and not have to worry about like fiddling with my carb settings for whatever the temperatures and moisture and like humidity conditions are for that day. So for the Jeep, which was also carbureted when I bought it, um, that engine's a boat anchor. There's nothing about that engine that's appealing. So going to the LS meant I could drive it every single day and not have to worry. And that has been accurate to this point. But the other thing I wanted to do with the Jeep was tow my Datsun track car. I, I'm i getting old and I used to drive the car regularly five hours, four hours to the track and back. And in, in the middle of the summer with no air conditioning, after you've spent a whole day driving on the track to get into your race car and then drive it back across the border or wherever you're going or through the mountains for four hours in the heat and the smell of the exhaust and all the gas fumes and stuff, it really it makes you question your life decisions at a certain point. <laughs> So I was like, okay, I'm going to build this Jeep and it's going to be great for towing. And um, that has turned out to not be the case. Oh, no. What do you mean? (laughs) So I did everything I thought I needed to do. Like it has great power. Uh, I installed Hydro Boost brakes so that I would have a much more stable braking system that I wouldn't have to worry about going down big hills, which I encounter a lot in New England near the tracks that I go to. Uh, I have um, a a decent, you know, it's got like a, a 4L60 transmission in it. Um, I, I, I bought last year when I, I hooked a trailer up to it for the first time, it sunk my suspension. The factory leaf springs were like super tired. So I bought new leafs at every corner and I bought an air suspension system for the back, like, uh, airbags that I could pump up to like hundred PSI and, um, lift the rear when I had the trailer attached. So I thought I had all this going for me. It turns out. <laughs> I, there were some, there were some, I had a problem when I picked up the trailer, um, the, uh, the day that I went to do it, Sammy, yeah. I plugged in the trailer at the U-Haul place because I, I don't have anywhere to keep a trailer in the city. So I have to rent them and everything worked on the trailer in terms of lighting and brakes, except for like one flasher. And it turns out we had to spend two hours tearing apart the old wiring harness for the old trailer lighting kit and then in a brand new one and this is all like on a day where i'm supposed to be on the highway already heading down to the track it was super stressful anyway yeah more stressful though is the fact that the platform of the wagoneer does not like using a u-haul trailer because u-haul trailers are very tongue heavy they put a lot of weight on the trailer tongue because they have a surge brake system at the front Um, instead of using electric brakes it's actually a system that when you break the force of gravity activates 
like a moving piece inside the the trailer tongue that tells the vehicle like the force of gravity oh we're, we're coming to a stop we should apply the brakes on the trailer so all of that weighs a lot and then you add the fact that on a u-haul trailer you have to drive all the way up to the front of the trailer and go over the top of there's like a a wheel well thing where you're supposed to sit your wheels and then the attachments for the trailer they fit over top of the wheel as it sits inside that platform so there's okay. you can't really mount um, a car farther back on the trailer there aren't any good tie downs on it so you're putting even more weight on the tongue now i thought first of all you can't use like a, a weight redistributing hitch on a on a trailer that has a surge brake it just doesn't work you can't ar- arrest the motion of the of the surge or you'll lose your trailer brakes so okay. that option's out the second option i had for helping the rear was my um, my airbags. So I pumped those up to like 60, 70 PSI. It really helped raise the rear, keep it level. But what I found on the highway was the, it wasn't so much that the trailer was swaying, but if it did ever sway, the wheelbase on the Grand Wagoneer is not long enough to absorb that. <laughs> oh no. And so the front would start to feel like a little, oh my God. a little twitchy and spicy. And then there was a moment where I was coming back from the track in the rain and we're we're on a, we're going up a hill like and I say a hill it's like the green mountains of Vermont and it was one of those situations where they had put like grooved pavement on one and a half lanes and so half of the lane was fine half of the one and a half lanes were grooved and the trailer had a wheel on each oh, and it's goodness. it's raining it was just flipping around 20 miles of Not this flipping around but swaying like, oh really. swaying and sliding and it was just it was a little terrifying like a little bit yeah. terrifying and I did not enjoy it the other issue that I had Sammy with the Jeep was um, you have to keep it in third gear because you shouldn't tow a an, an in overdrive. Like it's not great for the transmission. You can burn things out inside, mm-hmm. just raise the heat levels. So at third gear, most of the time, my LS is running around 2,700 RPM. But there are some times where it gets up to about 3,000. And if I'm going up a hill, it could kick down to six to, to second gear, I'm sorry, and then hit like 4,200. And not, like not 4,200, sorry, like, like, like near 4,000 RPM. Um, that's not bad for the motor, but apparently there's something wrong with mine because as soon as I get near 3000 RPM, oil comes out the bottom of the engine oh my and God. Coats, what? it coats the whole bottom of the chassis and then flies out the back and it's not burning. What? It's like, there's when something, did this start, when did this start happening? Wow. Well, I, it started happening when I started towing because I never drive the truck at 3000 RPM for any extended period. Uh, I can't figure out what's going on. It's It doesn't appear to be a PCB or anything like that because the top of the engine is totally dry. So I think there's a seal that is just, maybe I have too much oil pressure at certain RPM and it's pushing out through the seals. We're going to be putting the engine, or sorry, the, the vehicle on a dyno so we can run it under load okay. and see what's happening. But I didn't realize it was happening until we got to the mountainous regions where I was towing in. Um, and... I, I realized that like the back window of the Jeep was getting really dirty and I thought it was just dust being kicked up, but no, it was droplets of oil. And then I looked back on the Datsun and it was just covered in oil, <laughs> like the oh, whole front man. end. So that was really stressful too, because I didn't know how bad the leak was. Uh, it used about a liter in two hours of driving, and so a quart. That's That's a lot of oil to just be shooting out into the environment. Um, in any case... I did not have a good time towing with the vehicle. <laughs> My fiance was with me. She did not have a good time either. And 
I started to think a whole bunch of stuff about the lifestyle choices I was making because it's, it's one thing for me to like be really into having these old platforms and, you know, modernizing them and driving them every day. But it's, it's totally another for like me to expose people that I care about, like my father and my fiance to an environment that is probably not safe, first of all. And second, inconvenient in the sense that I caused a lot of stress for everybody not knowing what was going on with the platform and just being stressed out by how it was driving. So my dad's there towing his his car to the track with me on his modern pickup truck and having like no issues. And there I am like white knuckling it in my like 40 year old vehicle just because I want to lead a lifestyle that is on the surface a little bit absurd. Like it made me feel stupid. And then, and then like a couple of weeks later, I did the exact same trip, uh, towing to a different track. That's about 20 miles away. First I was at New Hampshire motor speedway. Then I was at club motorsport in Tamworth, New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. And this time I had a 2022 Dodge Ram and it was like a night and day experience, Sammy. Like I might as well have not been towing. The Datsun is so light that the Ram doesn't notice it whatsoever. It barely downshifts. Um, fuel mileage was pretty good. And it was just, it was like a comfortable, relaxed experience. And nice. the reason I'm bringing all of this up is because it's it's startling to me how different towing has become over the years, just in the sense now that there's so many electronic aids that that work with towing, like you can, um, you have stability control that, that can control trailer sway. You have a backup camera that makes it super easy to line up right. the, the, the hitch. I mean, it's, it's incredibly simple. The Ram that I had had like a trail, a tow, tow steering feature where you could use a dial on the dashboard to steer the truck if you wanted to. It didn't work with my setup for some reason, but it's, it's there. You have like a, you have like <laughs> I a, love that you, well, you have a feature that you can try, you can waste some minutes on trying to make it. <laughs> I think it's because I was using a four pin tower towing yeah. hitch instead of a seven pin, which has trailer brakes. And I think maybe it needs trailer brakes for that. Anyway, um, you can have uh, a tow haul mode on your transmission that will lock out overdrive. So you don't have to worry about that kind of thing. Oh yeah. Anyway, it was just, it was just so much easier. It was so plug and play. I felt like I was just in this in giant, the vehicle's so much bigger too, like the giant wheelbase compared to my Jeep. It was an incredible night and day difference. And it's really got me rethinking whether I want to pursue towing with the Jeep in the future because I love everything else I do with the Jeep. It's great for road trips. It's super comfortable. It's fun. I love driving it around town. It's really useful. It's got tons of room inside. Um, And in terms of like, you know, I complained about everything else about the towing experience, but power wise, I had no issues. Like even when it was downshifting going up the hill, I'm doing like 75 miles an hour and sometime, sometimes um, before I noticed I had the oil issue and the, the vehicle has tons of power for towing the, the, the Datsun only weighs like 2,500 pounds. So it's not a big deal, but at this point I'm kind of thinking that until I can get a trailer where I can move the weight of the Datsun more towards the center and I can attach like a, a trailer of my own and I can attach a load, load distributing hitch to it and balance things out. I don't think it's a good idea for me to keep towing with this platform using a U haul trailer. It just feels like, it feels like beating myself up, if that makes any sense. I'm going to tell you straight up, I've seen people tow way worse with way less and, you know, they they survive, but they just grit their teeth and deal with yeah, it, but I, I don't, guess. But if I, I, know, I, I know you don't want to be If I wanted to grit my teeth, if yeah. I wanted to grit, it's not about being irresponsible. It's about like spending 10 hours in a vehicle feeling like you could crash at any moment. Right. Like that's not, I might as well just be driving to and from the track in my track car if I'm going to be uncomfortable. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that, that to me, more so than the danger, just the fact that it's it's the first time I drove the Jeep and had a negative experience. 
like doing in, yeah. in recent years. So what do you want to do? What do you, what's the situation? I mean, you, the situation you don't have the, is space, I'm, I'm you don't have the space to get a, a trailer for this. No, but I'm moving out of the city. Like that's my end goal. I, okay. Announcement to the world. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, I've been looking at a place outside of urban Montreal for quite a long time. Um, and part of that is for lifestyle decisions. Like I need more room for cars because I'm an idiot who keeps buying cars <laughs> that they don't need in a world that, that um, is all about consumption, which is a topic Sammy and I often discuss. Uh, but I, I would have room to park a trailer, a more reasonable trailer, um, at, at whatever weird farming compound that I end up living on. So I think it's something that I might want to try again in the future. But as it stands now, unless I can come up with a better trailer option, maybe there are other rental places that have trailers where I can, you know, use my own tie downs and move the vehicle back. Uh, I think I'm going to retire the Jeep. I definitely until I figure out the oil leak problem. That's for right. sure. I'm starting to have the issue now where if I downshift on the highway, like if I floor it, um, it is I get I get a little bit of the oil smell and I can okay. see a little bit of leakage. So there is something going on with the seal. But uh, yeah, that's that's kind of where I stand with, with the Jeep. Just a little bit of an update for longtime listeners who know that I've had this project going for for quite a while. Um, I think you might, you might get more solutions. I don't know if you're going to be if you're going to be looking anything over or checking anything out. But um, I'm sure there's something that could be done. I, I don't want to call it like dire or anything like dire or anything like that. I th- I don't I can't imagine you're the only person who's ever towed with this with this setup or this vehicle. Well, no, there you are things I mean? that, there are things that can be done. The load distributing hitch works, but you it can't use your own situation. You yeah. can't use it with a U-Haul trailer. Like that's that's the issue. Lots of people do tow with the Grand Wagoneer, but it is known as not being a good tow platform uh, because of the wheelbase. Mm-hmm. And you definitely do need to have – you take measures to kind of – if you're dealing with a larger trailer or a heavier trailer, you do need to take measures to deal with that. Like if it's a utility trailer or something or like a small camping trailer, it's probably not a problem. But I mean U-Haul trailers are pretty long and that tongue is really heavy. And when you add those things together, and it's it's a recipe for an uncomfortable situation. Jeez. Well, you know what? I didn't have an uncomfortable situation on this week's podcast um, and I'm going to encourage, I'm in such a good mood, I'm going to encourage all of our listeners to get in touch with us, much like um, our friend of the show, Alex, did, who reached out to me on Instagram. Um, thank you for listening, Alex, and thank you even more so for reaching out. I really appreciate it. If you feel like reaching out, dear listener, it's very easy to do. You just go to our website, unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. There's a contact form. You can fill that out, um, and it lands in our inbox. Or if you want to do things without the website, you can just... Find us on social media. You can find Ben. He's on Instagram. He's at Hunting Benjamin. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Sammy underscore ha, H-A, like you're laughing. And if you want to find more episodes of the Unnamed Unnamed Automotive Podcast, there are more than 300 of them out there. They're on any podcatcher that you could care to name, Spotify, Amazon, Google, Apple, all that good stuff. But you can also find them at unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. And if you want to check out my comic book that's on Kickstarter right now, it's deadaircomic.com, all one word. Sammy, what are we going to be talking about next week? (laughs) Next week, I'm... uh... It depends on my mood, really. I can talk about a supercar or I can talk about some sort of three-row SUV. I just really don't know where I'm going next week. You know what I mean? Sammy's so moody. Uh, I'm going to be less moody. I think I'm probably going to be talking about the new Lexus RX, which is totally redesigned for this year, but is also in many ways not totally redesigned. (laughs) I can't wait to find out what those ways are. and (laughs) We'll we'll imagine until next week, right? All right. So thank you for listening, everybody. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you later. Bye.